Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Lara. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome, new listeners. This is Topic 2, Opera Houses, of Series 6, Historic Theaters. So if this is your first time checking it out, you can go ahead and listen to this one if you really want to, but I would recommend you go back and listen to Parts 1 and 2 of Topic 1, which was all about the Empress Theater. Part 1 is all about the building itself and the history that took place at the building. And then Part 2 is all about the vaudeville company that arranged for it to be built and the lives of the uh, people in charge of the vaudeville company, and it's just wild. I love it. Anyways, um, this is all about opera houses. This is actually part one. I was going to cover two opera houses and ran out of time. Y'all, I can't believe it's November. It's it's almost mid-November. How is time going by so fast? If you didn't know, November is Native American Heritage Month. Yay! Yes. No, seriously, yes. Native folks are awesome, and they need to be supported. So, um, as a part of that, I hope you will check out Series 5, People of the Island. It's all about the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas. Um, And check out my conversation with Second Chief Louisa Libby of the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas. Uh, one last quick announcement. So the orchard planting for the community garden, I've talked about it a few times on here. That was supposed to be last Saturday. It was canceled due to all the rain we had. It was a lot of rain. And it was rescheduled for next Saturday, November 19th. So it's going to be same bat time, same bat channel. Ooh, yeah, too soon, too soon. Uh, we just lost Kevin Conroy. And my heart is broken. He was, is, and always will be my Batman. Going to miss him. But, honestly, if you have free time and you can stop by and give us a hand, we would really appreciate it. It's going to be at the Hub Argentine, um, 9.30 to 12.30. We're going to have breakfast and lunch for y'all, and there's a playground there if you have to bring your kiddos. Alright, here we go. We're getting started on the actual topic. So, I swear I name-dropped the Coates Opera House in a previous episode, like in the jazz episode or one of the prohibition episodes, but I was going back through my notes and I couldn't find it, so maybe I mentioned it, but then I cut it out later when I was editing. I don't remember. Um, But that's what we're going to talk about today is the Coates Opera House. It was named for Kersey Coates, who was born September 15th, 1823 in Pennsylvania to Lindley Coates and Deborah T. Simmons Coates. His parents were Quakers and abolitionists, and they even ran a safe house on the Underground Railroad. So, way to go, parentals. Side quest. They're already awesome. The mom is, like, extra awesome because she is credited with the creation of the birds in the air quilt design. I'm not a uh, quilter. (laughs) I'm not a quitter. I'm not a quilter, so I had to look it up. It's a pattern of triangles... Um, with three smaller triangles inside each large triangle. It's supposed to look like geese in flight. And the design dates back to the Civil War, obviously. But after her death, 
in the 1800s, her offspring actually cut this quilt that she had um, made in half, one side for each branch of the family. And many, many decades later, their descendants decided to rejoin the pieces. And when they bound it together, they found a really small image of an African-American man um, in one of the squares, and he had been cut in half. So they had no idea that he was there for decades and decades. And this is believed to be either the first or one of the first examples of slavery in quilting. Also, this quilt in question is at the Lancaster Quilt and Textile Museum in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I just thought that was really interesting. Getting back to Kersey, he grew up in Pennsylvania. He was the middle child. His older sibling, Simmons, was born in 1821 and died in 1862 when he was thrown from a wagon and broke his neck. His younger sibling, Comley, was born in 1832 and died in 1858. Unfortunately, I didn't find anything out about their childhood. Of course, it's not uncommon for that to be the case. One of my sources did say that Kersey practiced law in Pennsylvania, so he might have gone to college and studied law, or he might have been self-taught. We've had a few of those on the show. But either way, it sounds like he passed the bar and he was a lawyer. At some point, again, couldn't find really when, he met Sarah Walter Chandler, born in Kenneth Square, Pennsylvania, on March 10th, 1829. Her parents were John W. Chandler and Maria Jane Chandler. They were also Quakers, just like his family. Sarah and Kersey married in 1854. That same year, he came out to Kansas City on a business trip with the Immigrant Aid Society. He was a land investor, and he was trying to scout around and find a place for other Quakers to come and stay to help settle the question of slavery in Kansas and Missouri. That's a whole thing. We're really not going to get into that right now. So he did buy up some land on top of the bluffs in downtown KC and start building. Uh, Y'all may have heard of this area of the city. Quality Hill? Yep, yep. Quality Hill is all thanks to Coates. Now, the couple didn't actually move to Kansas City until 1855. When they first arrived, they lived at the American Hotel because their house on land that he had bought for himself, it was still being built. That was at 10th and Pennsylvania. Well, they made no secret that they were abolitionists and that they were like actively working as abolitionists. So they received frequent threats, including death threat, death threats, excuse me, um, from those who were pro-slavery, um, especially some famous guerrilla fighters from the area. When the war did officially begin, Kersey became a colonel in the Missouri militia and he fought for the Union. Fun fact, the Union's cavalry... Apparently, I'm having difficulty with words today. Calvary stable? That I still didn't say that right, did I? The horses? <laughs> they stayed at 10th and Broadway, which that site later became the site of his hotel, the Coates House Hotel. But we're not discussing historic hotels today, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Skipping ahead a touch, after the war, Coates is really big involved in rebuilding the city. Robert Van Horn, whom I feel like I name-dropped uh, during one of the early Nelson Atkins Museum episodes. Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Kearney, the same Charles Kearney I mentioned in my Minnesota adventure to the Harris Kearney house. Check that out if y'all haven't listened yet. And Coates, they all worked together um, to bring railroads to the city, and they 
are behind the creation of the Hannibal Bridge, which is a BFD to Kansas City. Um, it is, I'm pretty sure that I name dropped this in the stockyards. I have not deep dived into the bridge yet, but it opened in 1869 and it's the first railway bridge to cross the Missouri River and it increases traffic and commerce to the city, uh, specifically to the stockyards, like exponentially. His wife, Sarah, is also working hard to help rebuild the city through charitable works. Another small leap in time here, and we will come to the year of our Lord, 1870. That's 1870. Um, this is when the Coates Opera House is built. So obviously this is pre-CBM. That's the City Beautiful Movement. I talked about it in my uh, Treasures of Kansas City series. But Coates, I feel, would 100% have been Team City Beautiful. He decided, in addition to the city being rebuilt and growing, we need culture here. We are dirt streets, <laughs> and we need to show that we are more than dirt streets, so we need to have some opera. He paid $105,000 out of his own pocket to have this opera house built. And he had it built just across the street from his hotel so that his customers didn't have to walk hardly, you know, I mean, just across the road, literally, to get there. Um, and again, that's because roads are unpaved when it rains, even when it doesn't rain, like, it gets really nasty, right? In fact, there were, for a really, really long time, there were rumors of tunnels that went underground from his hotel to the opera house. However... According to the Enchanted Years of the Stage, Kansas City at the Crossroads of American Theater, 1870 to 1930, this is just absolutely false. There is no architectural evidence of these tunnels, which even today there would be. According to KansasCityHistory.org, sorry, that's KCHistory.org, um, Coates was something of an elitist, and he was actually disgusted by the fact that the opera alone was not enough to draw in crowds to this theater, and so they had to host lectures, which honestly, lectures are educational. I think he would have been okay with that. But they also had to host minstrel shows, aka vaudeville, and that he probably hated. I struggled to find information on the architectural building of the self, um, aside from some old photos which I will have at least one on my social media pages for you to see. It's a beautiful building. One source did say that it had electric stage lights, which was super fancy at the time. The light bulb was only patented in 1880, which is only 10 years after um, the opera house is first built. Um, if you want to listen to me rant a little bit about the patent of light bulbs then you can listen to my Plaza Lines episode. I actually go on for a long time about that topic. Um, I did find a really great article. Um, sorry, not article. Um, like a section of a book in the early days of Grand Opera in Kansas City by Harlan Jennings um, that talks about the Coates Opera House. And then Jennings finally provided me with additional architectural information. Quote, the Coates Opera House underwent remodeling in 1881 at a cost of $45,000. The theater was lowered to the first floor and the auditorium expanded to create a parquet, balcony, and a gallery with a total capacity of 1,800 seats. 
The original leather upholstered benches, similar to church pews, were replaced with individual chairs. There were now four proscenium boxes and the star dressing rooms. The stage measured 36 by 72 feet. Further remodeling occurred in 1891 and 1900 when Coates sold the theater after 30 years of ownership. End quote. Okay, so we're going to unpack the last bit of that in just a second. So, um, the Opera House is built post-Civil War, right? What does that mean, class? Yes. Those of you who are shouting at me, some of you have correct answers and some of you are like, I don't know, Laura. Um, it means segregation, right? So, even though Coates was an abolitionist and he believed in free rights, um, not free rights, in freedom from slavery for blacks, that didn't necessarily mean that he was pro-equal rights. That's, that's what I was trying to say. So Jennings included a quote from a newspaper article that was published in 1871 or 1872, right after the Opera House opened. And in this article, it talks about a black man who apparently, you know, they were still allowed to attend the opera, but it's probably like way in the back and just the worst seats in the house, right? The nosebleeds. But um, this article talks about this black man who actually bought a ticket for this special whites-only section in the parklet. And then when he went to sit, the manager had him thrown out. According to Jennings, they also performed matinees for women and children. Again, that's because people are like, opera, what is this? Why is it in Kansas City? And so they're doing everything they can to get people to come in, right? I'm not 100% on this, right? This is just my own um, imaginings of the scenario. But I'm having a really hard time picturing a kid, I don't know, maybe even teenagers, but definitely kids, right? Sitting through a whole opera. So I'm leaning towards they're only doing like a song or two from the opera. And I also imagine that if you had performed that afternoon, then you would be tired, your voice would be really tired, and it would be difficult for you to do an entire opera that same night. So I'm kind of wondering if they traded days, like maybe the matinees are only on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and then you have your regular show on Friday and Saturday nights or something like that. That's just me. No sources said anything about that, other than the fact that there were matinees. That is from a source. Um, apparently, they didn't even perform a full opera for the first five years, so they are really struggling in the beginning. And this is because none of the opera troops in the East wanted to travel this far west. They think it's a podunk town. And railway tickets are expensive at this time. People are pretty much broke after the Civil War. And I highly doubt Coates was going to be like, Yes, you, let me pay for your entire troop to come out here. And salary. No, you would have been expected to pay your own way to come. And who knows if you're going to make that money back. Anyways... After a few years, they do start finally getting some big names out here. The first big-name opera singer actually came to the opera house in 1874. But then there's no troops for a few years, and then there are, and then there isn't. It's very up and down. Again, this is probably due to the fact that it's so far west, and because Kansas City doesn't have a great reputation at that time. Um, some of the biggest names to perform at the Coates Opera House over the years were Adelaide Phillips, Anna Bishop, and Pasquale 
Brignoli. Um, I am not an opera enthusiast or not that I'm anti-opera, but I just, I really don't know much anything really about operatic history. So if you are and you recognize those names, cool. Give me a shout out. Tell me what you know about them. This was really interesting though. So um, as a part of the lectures, right? One of the people to lecture at the opera house was Oscar Wilde, our Irish author and playwright, most famous uh, and well-known for his book, The Importance of Being Earnest. Early in his career, he actually came to America and um, did a tour through America and Canada, um, performing lectures at various places, right? And he came to the Coates Opera House on April 17th, 1882. So, a few minutes ago, I quoted Jennings as saying that Coates had sold the Opera House in 1900. But he actually died in 1887? So, I don't know why Jennings' info is a little bit off here. I Sorry, I did not make a record of what his source for that particular bit of information was. Or I really should have. I don't know if he meant his wife Sarah sold the opera house or just, you know, the estate in general sold the opera house. Sarah Chandler Coates did die in 1897. Um, here, here lies the end of our tale. On January 31st, 1901, the opera house burned to the ground. Walker Whiteside and Leela, I'm not sure if I'm saying her name correctly, actually. It's L-E-I-L-I-A. So Lilia? Wolston from the Whiteside troupe were performing a section um, selection, sorry, from Hamlet. And some of the other performers backstage noticed flames and, you know, notified everyone. Good. They all got out. Uh, apparently some of the costumes had caught fire somehow. Everyone made it out of the building without death or injury, but the company did lose all of their props and costumes, which was thousands of dollars. I imagine it would have been nearly impossible to come back from that. And they probably all split and went their separate ways. The, I don't know why, because I haven't dived into the history of the fire department. I don't know why they were unable to prevent the total destruction of the building, but they weren't. So it, it burned completely to the ground. And the city left the rubble alone for 10 years because they thought it would be rebuilt, but it never was. And that is the end for today. Thank you for joining me as we explore this piece of Kansas City's history. I was going to continue and discuss the Gillis Opera House in the second part of this, um, but there ended up being so much that I did have to break it up into two episodes. So, top two, or sorry, part two of this topic will be the Gillis Opera House. Make sure you listen for that one. Sources for today, um, articles and books from the Missouri Valley Special Collections. Love the Missouri Valley Special Collections. If y'all are in Kansas City, go to the public library, go up to the fifth floor, and you can walk around and look at it. It's very pretty. Also, kchistory.org, um, the oscarwildinamerica.org website, the blog on Civil War quilts. Um, a link for that blog I'm going to put in my website under this topic findagrave.com, and northeastnews.net. Northeast News is all about the Northeast neighborhood in Kansas City, and or neighborhoods, possibly. 
Um, they also have a podcast now. I uh, haven't checked it out yet, but I've heard good things about it. I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show if you're able. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You can give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or at coffee.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as a dollar a month. When you sign up, create an account, and subscribe to the show, you will be charged that day and then on the first of every following month. If you become a patron supporter, you get three things. First, you get an item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. You get a shout-out on every episode and social media post. Thank you, Bjorn, Joan, and Gina, for your continued support. Love y'all. And you get access to exclusive bonus content featuring other local historians, archivists, and museum curators. Everyone who simply gives a one-time donation, you will receive a shout-out on the next available episode, but you will not receive access to the bonus content or anything from the merchandise store. If you do give a donation on Coffee, that's K-O-F-I, then 1% automatically goes to help fight climate change, which is something I'm very passionate about. If you cannot support me monetarily, which I understand, uh, money is super tight for everyone right now, especially as we go into the holiday season, believe me, I know, then you can still support me by liking, following, and subscribing to my Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr, and Twitter pages. Also, my YouTube channel. I am Homegrown KC on all of those. Make sure you rate and review me wherever you listen, but especially on Apple Podcasts. I also have a website, homegrownkc.wordpress.com. You can go there to see additional information on all of the topics. It is still under construction, I know. I'm working on it. You can also sign up for my newsletter on my website. I think that's really the only place where I have the link for the newsletter. I need to probably see if I can add that link to my other social pages. But it's a great way for you to stay up with the show and find out what's new and what's upcoming. It's going to be on the first of every month. That's it. I'm not going to spam you. Frack, I just realized that. I I think I forgot to do my newsletter this month. Um, If you did not receive a newsletter from me this month, and you usually would, I apologize. You know what? I'm going to go back and double check and see if I forgot to do that. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkc at... uh, Try that again. You can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on any of my social media networks. If you want to check out what's available at the merchandise store, that's Zazzle, Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. Got a lot of stuff on there. Shirts, hats, uh, coffee cups, beer mugs, socks, bunch of other stuff that I can't even think of now. Um, buttons and magnets. Yeah, lots of cool stuff. Thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show. To local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. And to you. Thanks for listening. Cheers!
Talk through the nights on the phone. 